Well, one of the difficulties of preaching through or listening to a sermon series from the book of James is that week after week, it involves studying the sinful behavior of Christians. And that's not a pleasant thing to do. We've been sorting through some seriously dirty laundry. And so this series has had a a negative, heavy tone throughout. Uh, But it can't be helped. James is confronting Christians with their sin, with what he calls their double soulness. He's tracing out their sin's demonic, worldly source, and it's God-defying, spiritually adulterous implications. And we've been studying our own sin now for weeks in the light of their sin. And that can be discouraging. Particularly in a book that only mentions Jesus twice, and not once, the cross and resurrection. Looking at sin within those constraints, where our Lord's cross and resurrection is assumed but never explicitly referenced, uh, I found it a challenge to preach. Over an extended period, uh, it can start to wear you down. Maybe you feel like that. So let me just calibrate our thinking moving ahead, okay? In the book of James, we're reading about Christians who have become polluted by the world. They've adopted an ungodly worldview, an ungodly lifestyle that characterizes human life in its rebellious estrangement from its creator. They failed really to put into practice what they profess to believe and so live lives inconsistent with the life-transforming power of the gospel. How so? They fawn over rich Christians and have nothing but callous disregard toward their poor brothers and sisters. Their speech is uncontrolled and critical. They're filled with bitter envy and selfish ambition. They quarrel, they argue, they covet. Their prayer life is a shambles, praying to God with selfish motives that they may spend what they get on their pleasures. On point after point after point, they've adopted the world's standards and priorities, not God's. They are, in fact, James says, spiritual adulteresses. And they've provoked their divine husband to jealousy, to jealousy with their compromising, inconsistent religion. And so James' overall message has been a call to humble repentance. Loved ones, today's sermon is the last in a series dealing with this general theme of sin in the church. And by God's grace, I want us to finish strong. Uh, It's God's will that as the book of James is preached, that we be encouraged in our Christian faith, not discouraged. The Holy Spirit didn't inspire this letter so that we would all see our sin and despair. Not at all. No, what he wants for us, brothers and sisters, he wants us to be a pure bride, not an adulteress whose lover is the world. In the wisdom categories of James, it's black or white, and that's how he thinks in those extreme contrasts. A pure bride, not an adulteress. And to that end, through his spirit, God lovingly exposes our sin. He's been doing that now for weeks. That is a gracious, gracious action on his part. Thank God for it. Thank God for the exposure of sin, my sin, your sin. Christian, are you glad when God exposes sin in your life? Through the preached word, perhaps, or through a brother or sister's loving rebuke, over a meal, an elder member visit? Do you seek it? 
Do you pray for it? God, expose my sin. Show me my sin. And then show me Christ. Well, you can tell by the title, today's sermon is another heavy one. Arrogant, boasting in the church. And if this text is preached faithfully, Lord willing, no one will leave here today believing that God takes lightly the arrogant boasts of Christians who sit in judgment of the law of Christ by speaking against and judging their brothers and sisters, or who arrogantly boast in their future plans without reference to God's sovereign will. And that sin we're all prone to. Arrogant boasting isn't peculiar to Christians on the verge of apostasy, right? That's me, that's you. We're all prone to this. And so as we work through this passage, and as we see those, those pockets of presumptive arrogance, beloved, and actually, if we believe that there is no presumptive arrogance in our lives, and that's just proved that there is. But as we see it, we can know that the Holy Spirit is graciously favoring us. He's revealing sin, and then he's mediating the power of the gospel to us. He's making us more like Jesus Christ. He's making us a fit bride for our jealous husband. So look with me in your bulletins to point number one. Christian, do not speak against or judge a brother or sister. That is arrogant presumption and a violation of the law of God. James begins in verse 11, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another or do not speak against one another. The commentators say slander is probably too specific a translation here. Uh, the Greek word is used in a variety of contexts and denotes any kind of harmful speech, not just slander. But again, though, we're seeing sins of the tongue, right? That seems to be a big problem with these people, their tongues. But why mustn't Christians speak against one another? James continues. Verse 11, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Now, when I was preaching through James chapter 2, I told us that chapter was the most difficult, dense, technical section of the entire letter. Do you recall that? <laughs> uh, so I'm not going to get into all the details again. It would just take too long. Uh, but perhaps you recall me saying that this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of Pentecost, we're no longer under the law of Moses. Right? We're under the law of Christ. The Bible teaches that in a couple places explicitly, calling it the law of Christ. And I also said the command to love our neighbor as ourselves is a particularly important part of that law. If we would just turn back to James chapter 2, verse 8. Just a very, very quick recap on this, because it applies to what we're looking at today. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, James 2, 8, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Okay, well, what is this royal law? Well, the royal law is the law connected with Jesus' inaugurated kingdom the kingdom over which Jesus rules as the royal king. Jesus mediates all of his father's sovereignty over heaven and earth right now. In James 1.25, James speaks of the perfect law that gives freedom. The royal law is the same thing. It's James' way of referring to the total sum of God's commands for his people through his royal son, Jesus. 
the royal law is the whole law of God as interpreted and handed over to the church in the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. And the command to love our neighbor as ourselves is, the, is at the very center. It's the centerpiece of the law of Christ, the royal law, the perfect law that gives freedom. So when James says in chapter 2, verse 8, uh, might be paraphrased like this. If you really keep the royal law, the law of the dawning kingdom, the law which is according to Scripture, Scripture has been magnificently fulfilled in all that Christ has taught and affected, and that is rightly summarized in love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. That's a good paraphrase of that verse. And then the rest of the text is pretty straightforward. 2.9. But... If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. So with all that under our belt, that's a bit of a recap. Let's look again at James chapter 4, 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Do not speak. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. When we speak against our brothers or sisters in Christ, or when we stand in judgment over a brother or sister, you say we fail to keep the law of Christ. And failing to keep that new covenant law means we sit in judgment on it. We, de- we deny its authority over us. That's what it means. We deny its authority over us. That, that's actually that's a huge deal. That's a denial of Jesus' authority over us. It's his law. It's his commands. And that is presumptuous arrogance. That is a morally outrageous expression of our creaturely autonomy. That we even think of doing such a thing. Once more, we see coming to the surface, what we see here coming to the surface is James' understanding of Christianity is is something whose reality is tested by the measure of one's obedience. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now we need to be careful about that last part. Who are you to judge your neighbor? That doesn't mean in our relationships with each, with each other, we're supposed to throw all discernment, all judgment out the window. Uh, there is a proper and necessary discrimination every Christian needs to be exercising in the local church, right? We need to be looking out for one another. We've entered into a covenant, right, to actually keep one another accountable. Nor is James forbidding the right of the local church to exclude from fellowship those members it deems to be living in unrepentant, flagrant disobedience to the standards of the faith. No, James' concern here is with jealous, censorious speech in the church, speech by which we condemn our brothers and sisters as being wrong in the sight of God, even to the point of denying the veracity of their salvation. Uh, There seems to be people here who are making negative pronouncements of their brothers' and sisters' spiritual welfare on the veracity of their salvation. That's why James writes in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. 
For, for individual Christians to step into that realm of judgment is arrogant, sinful presumption. We're usurping a prerogative of God himself. Of course, he has entrusted the keys to the church to bind and loose. That's not what he's talking about here. Now, what does this sin look like in a local church? How can we know if we're actually behaving this way? How can we know if this text is reproving us? By asking ourselves some honest questions, loved ones. I think a helpful, helpful text to bring in on the side of this might be what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 7. I've heard certain people say that John 3.16 probably used to be the most famous verse in the Bible. You still see people at baseball games with John 3.16, but actually maybe now the most popular verse, even though people don't know where it comes from, is Matthew 7.1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Everyone's heard that. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's a very colorful illustration. It's humorous, you know, but it's no exaggeration, is it? It's just pathetically true. We all need to ask ourselves, do I consist... These are some of the kind of the diagnostic questions, all right, to ask. Do I consistently managed to come out on top, spiritually speaking, in my own mind after interacting with other Christians. She's down here and I'm up here. Do I honestly think of the others in this church as better than me? Do I think of their lives as amazing testaments to the grace of God? Is that my default position? Or am I always looking for faults in my fellow members so I can contrast their sin with my own piety? Could a member of this church come safely and tell me about their sin struggles? And they'd have no fear that I'd be looking down my spiritual nose at them because to my thinking, the ground really is level at Calvary. Am I, in fact, looking for God's grace and other members at New City Baptist Church and that I can rejoice in it? Just rejoice in the grace of God in your life. Because if we're not looking for grace, loved ones, we're probably looking for sin. Am I being blessed beyond all measure in seeing others in this church outstrip me and advance ahead of me in grace? Do I just naturally assume others here pray with greater fervency and greater intimacy in secret than I do? I just assume it. Am I trying to learn godliness from my new city brothers and sisters, people I I honestly deem to be more holy than myself? What's fundamentally at stake here, new city, is attitude. What's your attitude? What's my attitude? But in our text this morning, James groups two sins together. 
two sins people are committing under this general theme of presumptive arrogance. Not only are they arrogantly presuming to speak against their brothers and sisters in the church thus sitting in judgment of God's law and arrogating to themselves the very prerogatives of God, but they also, they're making plans in life which ignore God's sovereign providence. Look at verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. All right, just stop there for a second, because perhaps you're thinking, come on, Pastor John, what's wrong with that? Right? I mean, mean, these people sound like enterprising go-getters. They have ambition. They have a plan. They're they're prepared to work hard. They're prepared to travel. Is, Is God opposed to that kind of lifestyle? What's wrong with having a plan for the future and making money? Actually, nothing. Uh, There are all sorts of texts in the Bible that encourage wise monetary stewardship, hard work, planning for the future. Uh, Think of Proverbs chapter 6, 6 and following. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in the summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. And and quite frankly, there's a number of Christians who could really learn something, I think, from the industry and planning of these people in verse 13. So what's the problem? Right? Why, Why is James taking them to task? What's wrong is that their attitude is full of arrogant presumption. They're confidently pronouncing what will transpire in the future, and that's a prerogative of God alone, just like his judgment is a prerogative of God alone. Arrogant boasting in the church, right? Human beings don't have the right to confidently pronounce what will transpire in the future. It is arrogant. Jesus Christ, he sits on his heavenly throne and he alone mediates his father's sovereign will. For a Christian to speak this way, today or tomorrow, I will go to this or that city. I will spend a year there. I will carry on business and I will make money is arrogant, boastful and evil. It's evil, James says. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning from ancient times. What is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. What sort of universe do these Christians in James chapter 4 think they're living in? What sort of non-sovereign, impotent deity do they think they serve? They decide where they will go. They decide when they will go. And they decide how long they will stay. And and they somehow know that they will gain a profit by their venture. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing wrong with making plans for our lives. That's a good thing. But our plans are always subordinated to the will of God. Always. God is sovereign. He does as he pleases. Things don't just happen in life. God rules. God determines. And so, 
family members get sick. We get sick. Relationships fail. Investments fail. Jobs fail. Money gets a lot tighter. Church mergers implode. There's a global pandemic. We must always leave room for God's will to overrule our own. That's not just in theological religious theory, but in practice and prayerfully working toward that end in practice. But that all important fact isn't entering the picture for these believers in verse 13. Verse 13 really is the business plan. It's the life plan of the practical atheist, isn't it? Or at best, the deist. A person who believes God winds up the universe like a watch and then throws it out there and just tells us to get on with it without him. How does James respond? Verse 14. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Have you ever heard of warfarin? It's a... As you get older, we all will. Uh, It's a medicine. It's an anticoagulant used in the prevention of deadly blood clots. Uh, Your friendly neighborhood pharmacist dispenses warfarin 100 times a day. But interestingly, it was initially introduced in 1948 as a pesticide against rats and mice, and it still is today. Uh, The rodents die from fatal hemorrhaging. When you give rats poison, that's what happens. You give them warfarin, and they hemorrhage internally. Uh, Now... There was a six-month period in my life when I was friends with a good number of South African doctors. I won't get into all the details how that came to be, but all these doctors were retaking, they were all retaking their medical exams so that they could practice medicine in Canada. And part of their GP exam was to move through 15 or so medical scenarios with paid actors as patients. Actors who were following a script describing a certain malady. So at one station, it might be a person who's pregnant. At another, someone is depressed. Or they might be describing chest pains. And through a series of questions, the doctor in training must determine, is that merely indigestion? Or is that a serious heart issue? Or are you pregnant? Or whatever. And other doctors are evaluating the candidate on everything from their diagnostic capabilities to their bedside manner. It's a a serious test. So... One of my friends was taking this exam, and at a certain point, there was a patient, right, who, who wouldn't take his warfarin, this anticoagulant drug, and he was making a big scene, and the actor was yelling. It's rat poison! It's rat poison! I won't take it! It's rat poison! Why do I have to take it? And this went on for some time, very loud, and finally, my exasperated friend told him in a South African accent, which I can't, you know, describe, but it's perfect, he goes, because if you don't take it, you're going to die! That's how he responded. Now, now, frankly, that's the kind of doctor I like. You know, I want, to get, I want to get it straight from the doctor. If you don't take it, you're going to die. But my friend was penalized on his exam. That, that was deemed to be too blunt of a response. That was a very poor bedside manner. It lacked tact. So, is that what James is doing here in verse 14? Oh, you're making plans for the future, are you, Christian? You could be dead in a ditch tomorrow. No. James doesn't respond the way he does because he's a blunt, tactless fellow. He's confronting us with our creatureliness. What is your life? 
You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We're mortal, right? We're not autonomous. And it's an outrageous act of presumptive arrogance to practically deny our creatureliness as we go about making plans. We're dependent upon God for everything, including the next breath we draw. And God can cut short our lives just as quickly as the sun dissipates the morning mist. Or a shift in the direction of the wind blows away smoke. Your life, my life, our spouse, our mom, our dad, our children. Proverbs 27.1 Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Ladies, any one of you right now could have a malignant lump growing in your breast. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Brothers, any one of us could be in a fatal car accident this week. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Therefore, Christian, assess all your future plans. Do you have a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 25-year plan? That's fine. That's good. That's not a presumptuously arrogant thing to do. Getting an education, marriage, kids, career, PR status, investments, keeping healthy, saving for retirements. Those aren't practices James would condemn. Many of them may well be a wise form of stewardship. But we hang on to all those plans loosely. Not one of them is guaranteed. Our Heavenly Father is sovereign, beloved, and He has plans for our life we know nothing about. Plans which may be at radical variance with what we're expecting, or even what we're hoping for, or just naturally assuming will happen. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. See, that's the biblical attitude we need to be striving for. An attitude that recognizes both our creatureliness and the sovereignty of God's will. Both those things. Instead of this arrogant, self-confident attitude we read of in verse 13, we need to be qualifying, qualifying all our hopes and plans with reference to the will of the Lord. This is something the Apostle Paul understood well. Just listen to these passages. I'll just read you a few. Romans 1.10. I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. 1 Corinthians 4.19. I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. 1 Corinthians 16.7. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Acts 18.21 He went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Now, if 
we go to Turkey and hail a taxi and we ask the driver, how long will it take to get to the airport? The cabbie will respond, 15 minutes, God willing. But the driver's not saying that because he's a super, super devout Muslim. It's the culture. Everyone talks that way. But it's not, it's not the constant verbalization, if the Lord wills, that James is really pressing for here. Obviously, I mean, that can become just an absolutely meaningless recitation, right? Like, kind of like the cabbie. What's important, what needs to be a fixed principle in our minds, is that we will do nothing without the permission of God. So, we make our plans, but we make allowance for God's will to change those plans. To act otherwise, to make plans as if God were some contingent force and not the ruler of the universe and the sustainer of our lives, the God whose sovereign sanction is required if even a sparrow falls from the sky, is arrogant boasting. And the biblical language doesn't allow for wiggle room on this or euphemism. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. Or as one Bible translation puts it, you get a certain pride in yourself in planning your future with such confidence. That's, that's bang on. You get a certain pride in yourself in planning your future with such confidence. All such boasting, friends, is evil. When we fail to take God into account when we're making plans for the future, we're acting in an evil fashion. And at the very root of this evil is pride, arrogant pride. When we fail to take God's overruling veto on every plan we make for the future, we arrogate to ourselves a self-determining power, an autonomous force of human will that trumps the holy, omnipotent, sovereign will of our creator. That's serious business. That is bad. It shows me, it shows we want to remove ourselves from God's control and live life outside the scope of his sovereignty, outside of his will for us. I take center stage in place of God. Such boasting is evil. It is an arrogant disregard for God. It's an attack on his sovereignty. It's an attempt to de-God God. 17. So then, and this is now the case for all of us here today, so then, if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. You see, James has just told us what's good, what's right, so now we must do it, right? God's grace enabling us. And if we fail to do it, now that we know the good we ought to do, we're sinning. And so we submit our lives to God. We acknowledge, brothers and sisters, our creatureliness. We acknowledge our creatureliness. We acknowledge our utter dependence upon God for our next breath. We're a people who say, if the Lord wills, I will live. What is my life? It's a mist. It's a vapor, a puff of smoke. My days are in his hands. I am not autonomous. I am not the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Instead, I bow the knee to Jesus' lordship in the sense that 
as I make my plans in life, I hold on to everything, every desire, every ambition, every family member, every dollar, every ministry, every particle of health. I hold on to it all, all with a loose hand, prepared to part with all of it at a moment's notice, should the Lord will. Amen.